It's 1979, and five weeks into launching Reggae Beat on a Los Angeles radio station, the host of the show gets a phone call from Island Records. Roger Steffens is about to be asked the question of his career. Do you want to go on tour with Bob Marley and the Whalers? I knew I couldn't go back. You just wife. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I could not. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Kogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. I think he is the major musician of the 20th century. His music will last as long as we have people on this planet. Roger Steffens is regarded as one of the top 10 most influential people in reggae music. His reggae archives, the largest outside of Jamaica, includes over 300,000 titles on tape, CD, and vinyl, and the world's most extensive collection of Marley reggae memorabilia, plus hundreds of thousands of other reggae and Rasta-related items spread out over seven rooms in his Los Angeles home. His Marley collection has been called the most complete in the world by Bob Marley and the Whalers, earning Roger the nickname Ras Roger, given to him by Marley himself. And Rolling Stone magazine said Stefan's recently published book, So Much Things to Say, is the best Marley book ever. There's no doubt this aficionado is a legend and highly respected all over the world. For the past 45 years, He's been spreading the sound and history of reggae through his radio shows, lecture series, and displays at hundreds of venues. Growing up in the Caribbean, I couldn't wait to see Roger's reggae collection at his house and hear his amazing stories of being on tour with the legend himself, Bob Marley. Ready to roll. Where exactly are we in L.A.? Echo Park. Echo Park. I thought the best place to start is maybe with some quotes just to give some context to who you are in terms of your knowledge of Bob Marley, reggae music. Your story is so deep, and I think it speaks to the fact that we are sitting in your home where I have never seen so much reggae and Bob Marley memorabilia in my life. So, a couple of quotes. Roger is one of the top 10 most influential people in reggae music. I've learned a lot. It's been a 45-year journey for me since I first read about it in Rolling Stone. And and not a day goes by in my life that I don't listen to reggae. And almost every day there's a new addition to the archives. People send me stuff all the time from all over the world. Uh, The Schomburg Institute tried to buy my archive many, many years ago in, in Harlem. And uh, they told me that the ephemera was of special interest to historians. So behind me uh, are several file drawers filled with 30,000 reggae flyers from all over the world. And uh, 100 years from now, that stuff will be priceless. Well, I love that you have been in this world for 45 years and you still feel like you've got a lot to learn. Oh, yeah. And, and, but just having met you and walked around with you, that your depth of knowledge is it's so deep i wonder how it all fits in there uh <laughs> my, do you have a my hard, hard drive, drive is on <laughs> tilt i, I think I, I mean seriously you must have to uh like you know put more hard drive in there to just keep up with the stories and the photos and 
the recordings, it's endless. It's endless. It, it, I mean, this little island, couple of mile, a couple of hundred miles off the coast of America, and it wasn't until 1973 that people in America were even aware of the reggae world. And uh, Bob was one of the principal reasons that that knowledge began to spread with his Catch a Fire album and No Woman, No Cry, and uh, I Shot the Sheriff, covered by Eric Clapton. That that opened up new worlds. The, the Catch a Fire album, was that his first album before he he went and and met up with Chris Blackwell? No, no, Blackwell released that album. He'd had several albums in Jamaica during the ska and rocksteady periods and early reggae periods with Lee Scratch Perry. But we really think of of the uh, Catch a Fire album as Bob's first international album. Give us some context of who Chris Blackwell was and how he helped propel Bob Marley and the Whalers. Blackwell's an interesting character, upper-class British, uh, related to the Cross and Blackwell family, but his mother was uh, uh, very wealthy uh, in her own right. They lost their fortune when he was a kid, and he had to go to work, and he began in England uh, distributing records out the back of his car. And he would license Jamaican records and put them on his own island record label in uh, small center holes uh, 45s. Would this have been in the 60s? Yeah, early 60s, the the Scott period. For those people who don't know, the big Jamaican West Indian population moved to England around the 1950s was a big migration, right? So The Windrush generation was largely Jamaican people brought over to do menial jobs. Mm. Yeah, so he was catering to that audience more than anyone else. And he released Bob's first Jamaican records before Bob formed the Whalers. He had two records. He had a record called Judge Not and another record called One Cup of Coffee. And they're both on early island record labels in England. So he kind of lost interest in reggae in the late 60s and concentrated on his rock and roll acts, Traffic and others. Um, But in 1972 era, he was working with Jimmy Cliff, and Jimmy Cliff had just made a movie called The Harder They Come, so he released the soundtrack of that record. And that was one of the prows on the icebreaker of, of reggae music, uh, that and Catch a Fire, and the, the follow-ups, uh, which included Bob Marley's version of No Woman, No Cry, and uh, I Shot the Sheriff. And that really brought reggae to worldwide attention, and it was thanks to to Chris Blackwell, in large part, that the world learned about reggae music. How did he do it? Because how did he cut through? Because it was such a niche part of the music world. It was considered novelty music. Right. But I've said this to people before, and some people have disagreed with me. I have said that having traveled to over 120, 130 countries, I've never seen one musician or a type of music cut through so many different cultures around the planet than Bob Marley. I I have been, and I'm talking about more than Elvis, more than Michael Jackson, more than any popular music. You could go anywhere on this planet and everybody knows who Bob Marley is. Because Bob Marley's music stood for something. It meant something. It called you to a higher level of being. 
It made you speak and think about peace and love and rebellion. And he loved herb and was proud to smoke herb in front of anybody and say that you cannot make this illegal. How can you make one of Jaws plants illegal? You, you spoke about what he stood for, what his messages were. He's, he's always spoken for the oppressed, right? He's always spoken for those who are struggling to, to get their rights, to have their rights, to, to find freedom, as you said. And so we forget just how many people are living in developing countries that they hear this and they're inspired by it. He had this ability with his words and music to inspire in a way that I don't know if any other musician has done that. I can't think of any. I think he is the major musician of the 20th century. There's so much about his story that is not duplicated in the lives of John Lennon or, or uh, Bob Dylan or any of the major, major figures. His music will last as long as we have people on this planet. And, and it's the demographic that he cuts through because you will hear a Bob Marley song being played on a super yacht. And then, and then you'll hear it being played in some poor village in Brazil. Yeah. It, he just seemed to cut through and speak to everybody, no matter who they were, where they were from, what their background was. You understand, Phil. Uh, I, I've seen you get it. it. I've seen, it, seen it with my own eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And when you think that he was 36 years old when he died, you, you wonder what would have happened if he lived as long as Paul McCartney or, you know, or, or some other significant musicians, songwriters, or maybe he was, he was destined to go early. I don't know. Well, he predicted his own death at 36 when he was 24 years of age. He was living in Delaware with his mother in the summer of 1969, and he told Ibis Pitts and Dion Wilson that he was going to die at 36. That's an odd thing for a kid to be thinking about. It is, at 24 uh, years old. Especially at that age. Yeah. Yeah, but he knew. Roger, how did you discover Bob Marley? Hmm. How did he come into your life? There was a marvelous article in Rolling Stone magazine in June of 1973 by an Australian gonzo journalist named Michael Thomas who said, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of Upper Niger consciousness. I feel like I need to be taking some kind of mind-altering drug to listen to that. I know. And I was living in Berkeley at the time, and I, I put the magazine down, and I ran out and went down to Shattuck Avenue to a used bookstore, and I found a $2.25 used copy of Catch a Fire, the original uh, cover that opened like a Zippo lighter. And I took that home, and from the first notes of the first song, Concrete Jungle, I was mesmerized. And then the beat gets to you. The secret of reggae is that the beat of reggae is the beat of the healthy human heart at rest. Boom, 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 boom. That's Nyabingi music. That's Jamaican rutical music. And so you have a visceral response to it, even if you don't understand the lyrics. Like being in the womb, maybe. And yeah, oh, oh, but precisely, it's the music you hear in the the beat you With hear in mother. the womb. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a key. And a lot of people around the world learned English so they could understand Bob Marley's music better. And the chosen rhythm of resistance around the world for protest singers is most often the rhythm of reggae. Why did he feel 
this need to speak out to the oppressed and to encourage people to stand up for their rights. Why Bob Marley? Why, why, why was he Bob the Marley, voice? Bob Marley's father was a white man. Not a lot of people know that. He was 64 years of age when, his, when he was born to an 18-year-old black woman. Um, his father, he was disowned by his own family. Um, he was not a captain, and he was not from Liverpool. He was born and raised in Jamaica. He came from a very wealthy family that were constructors who built most of the infrastructure in the 1800s in Jamaica. But he, he was an heir-to-well, and he was a private in World War I, and he poured cement. But uh, these myths go about that he was from Liverpool and he was a... These are myths that you don't want to perpetuate, right? No, like, <laughs> and that's what my book puts the rest uh, to. I, I can't I wait to, to, read, to read your book be yeah. just because I, I love that you have dug so far into these details and that yeah. you can give some clarity to who this person is. Not, not a lot of people know that he had a white father. Yeah. And, and there's so many stories that go about in, in books and in documentaries that are just absolutely 100% Does it drive false. you crazy? It drives me nuts. And it took me 15 years to wrestle that book to the ground and 38 years of interviews. Uh, and it finally came out in, in the summer of uh, 2017. And I'm really excited because we've got Dutch, French, Spanish... Chinese, Bra didn't Brazilian, we just sign to... And we just sold the Chinese rights to the book. I don't know how they're going to translate Patois <laughs> into Chinese, but they're going to They're going to have to go. invent some new characters. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah with dreadlock. Yeah, maybe dreadlock characters, <laughs> <laughs> just to make it all work. Yeah. So, but, but make no mistake, he was a champion of black people and black power. Yes. And, uh, and yet he struggled with his identity because... Of having a white father, you said yeah. his mother was was eighteen to yeah. a sixty four year old father. Yeah. Uh, he got caught in between being white and black, right? And he well, he was rejected by everybody. He was rejected by black people because he had white blood. Even his grandmother called him the little German boy. Is that right? Yeah, and and uh, you know, white people didn't want anything to do with him. But when he was living in Trenchtown as a teenager, he fell in love with a local girl and. The girl's parents came to Bob's mother and said, you keep your kid away from our daughter. We don't want him screwing up our bloodline. Yeah. Uh. So he was a loner, and he was an abandoned child, and that's something that the Marley documentary a few years ago missed totally. The most important fact of his childhood was the fact when he was five, his father showed up out of the blue in Nine Mile, the village up in northern Jamaica where he was born, and said to Bob's mother, give me the kid and I'll take him to, Jamaica, to Kingston and educate him, give him a shot at a better life. And instead he sent him to live with an old woman who was dying. So from the ages of five to seven, Bob Marley was an abandoned child in one of the worst slums in the Western Hemisphere, fending not only for himself, but for this old lady. And that informed everything he did for the rest of his life. It gave him the sympathy for the downpressed sufferers who through no fault of their own but an accident of birth found themselves in this hideous situation, or livity, as the Jamaicans call it. How long did it take for him to be, I guess, he must have at some point realized that he was accepted? 
even though there were the struggles, but where he knew that there were people that did accept him because yeah. to have come through that struggle from five to seven of feeling completely abandoned. When Bob really started to make it overseas, 73 forward, then suddenly the people in Jamaica realized this wasn't just another struggler from the ghetto. This was someone that white people of means were looking toward almost as a, a an avatar, as a savior. And so if he could make it in those places, we better pay more attention to him here in Jamaica. And it was thought by the end of his life in 1980 that if he ran for for, for prime minister, he, he might win. And he eschewed politics as all Rastafarians do. He hated politics. G give us some context of what it means to be a Rasta and why he gravitated towards that belief. In 1930, uh, a somewhat obscure nobleman named Rastafari, who could trace his personal lineage back to King Solomon, married uh, the empress and became Emperor Haile Selassie I and took the title King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Conquering Lion of the tribe of Judah. So everybody in Jamaica started saying, this is the person we've been waiting for. He fulfills all, all the necessities. He, he answers the biblical prophecy. And they began worshiping him as Christ returned to earth not in his uh, character as a lamb to the slaughter, but in his kingly character, which is the returned Christ. So that was the basis of the faith known as Rastafari. They are the purest ones uh, will live in the hills, and they are so pure they won't even eat a piece of fruit until it falls to the ground of its own volition. They don't eat meat. They try to uh, avoid salt. Um, they worship through the use, the conscious use of cannabis, which to them is the herb written about in the Bible as the healing of the nation. And, you know, as Bob said to me, this, this herb, uh, like reggae music, is not for jollification, it is for education. And it is to bring you to a higher place it is to bring you uh, an elevated state. And that, you know, when people say, didn't Bob smoke dope all the time? And I say, he smoked herb all the time, but he used it as a tool. There are all these great anthems that you hear in your travels all over the world. Yeah. No woman, no cry, get up, stand up, get up exodus, and stand up. Um, three little birds. They're all written under the direct influence of using marijuana. Well, I've learned so much in the last two minutes just yeah. listening to oh. that whole history because I never really understood the full context of it all. I understood aspects of it, yeah. but now yeah. I really get it. Yeah. And, and I can see why he identified with that based on where he'd come mm -hmm. from and the message he was trying to share. And the message, I mean, his first record was Judge Not. The road of life is rocky and you may stumble too, but while you point the finger, someone else is judging you. And he used that chorus 17 years later in, in his disco song, uh, Could You Be Loved, only it was the I3 now Could singing it as a background yeah. vocal. As soon as you say the words, you hear the song. You hear you? the songs, yeah. yeah. You hear uh, Bob's song once and you, you, you know it forever. Yeah, you speak with such passion now, what, 45 years later. Yeah. It's like you're seeing more and more the further you go. Every day I learn something new. 
Yeah. You know, since the Netflix documentary came out uh, called uh, Who, Shot, Who the Shot the Sheriff. Who Shot the Sheriff on Netflix now. And you're one of the, the leading voices there as an authority in everything Bob Marley. Incredibly insightful. Roger, we are sitting in your home here and a lot of people will be listening so they can't see where we are. But if I'm not mistaken, I think there's seven rooms in your house mm -hmm. that are filled with more Bob Marley reggae memorabilia than I have ever seen in my life. I can't imagine that there's anywhere else on the planet that has more. Well, Can the you Whalers tell me there isn't. And the <laughs> Whalers have been everywhere twice. Well, describe <laughs> to me what is around us. Um, there are eight of the 13 drawers filled to the brim with Bob Marley clippings arranged chronologically, going back to the 60s. There are 1,500 t-shirts. There are 30,000 flyers. There's about 2,000 big posters. Um, there's over 3,000 books and magazines. There's these big cabinets behind me are filled with cassettes. There's 14,000 hours of cassettes. There's 2,200 hours of broadcasts I did on the radio. Um, I'm leaving out a whole bunch of, there, there's uh, art, there, there's records. statues. Oh, the records, yeah, yeah, there's about 10,000 records and, and uh, CDs. Uh, I think 40% of all my Jamaican records are autographed and a lot of those people are no longer with us. Um, and, you know, buttons, there's about 4,000 buttons. To me, the buttons are the folk art of the movement. They're handmade by adherents of Rastafari and they tell the story of the music and the faith. And uh, I, every time I go to Jamaica, I come back with a couple of hundred more. Okay. And what else am I missing here? Well, paintings, you know. Um, Photographs and 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 uh, a ten million diamond award given to Charlie Comer, Bob's publicist, who gave it to me when he passed away. My life's goal is to get this all to Jamaica to become a museum. I've been frustrated over the years, and many attempts have almost made it, and uh, for one reason or another, they haven't. My bottom lines are: it must be kept intact forever, and it must be made available to the public while respecting all the artist rights. And I'm very, very close to achieving that right now, so. Fingers crossed, because what yeah. an incredible acknowledgement of, of his life. And I, I was lucky enough to walk around with you before we started talking, and you just showed me the collection that you have. But the other thing is just your knowledge. I mean, it's very important, too, that that all of that knowledge is connected with the pieces, that you can speak to each of these pieces here. So let's go back to when you were a younger man. You yeah. find you, you find Bob Marley. You 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 get so excited about who Bob Marley is, and and what does it inspire you to do? Well, you know, I've been a, a public speaker my whole life. Yes, and uh, a broadcaster since 1961. My first interview. You've uh, got a great voice, by oh, the way. Thank you. It's so it's so nice to listen to your oh, voice. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, my first uh, guest in 1961 in New York was Olu Tunji. The Nigerian drummer, Babatunde Olatunji, Drums yes. of Passion, my first guest. And um, when, it, when something excites me, I want to spread the word. So when I first heard reggae, 
I wanted everybody I, I knew to, to come and share this with me. When do you hear this record? I can't believe this record is so good. And, then, and this is in a day when people really didn't know what reggae was. Never heard the word. I mean, you know, 1969 Israelites for Desmond Decker was yes. a hit in America, but they treated it like a novelty record. Before right. that, in 64, uh, My Boy Lollipop, Little Millie Small, was pure ska. Yeah, but nobody ever said ska. Oh, can you explain the difference? Just while we're here, the mm. difference between ska and reggae. Oh, easy. Yeah, ska is. They're all based on the heartbeat, yes. but there's different rhythms to it. So ska, 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 ska. It's a fast music. That's why teenagers love it, and we'll have ska revivals for forever. We've had four already major right. ska revivals. Um, Rock steady for two years, sixty-six to sixty-eight slowed that beat down. The, the myth or the legend is that the summer of 66 in Jamaica was brutally hot. So that fast dancing just wore them out too fast. So they changed just it <laughs> to rock steady. Ba-boom-pum, ba-boom-pum, ba-boom-pum. But it's still that ba-boom-pum, the heartbeat. And then chuck, 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 chuck. Reggae came in in 1968 and changed the world. Wow. But it's all heartbeat. I, I love that. That's so cool. So you hear this heartbeat, yeah. and you say, friends, you need to listen to this. No kidding. And and when I met Hank Holmes in 1978 in L.A. Uh, and went to his house, I was flabbergasted because he had 8,000 Jamaican records and had never left L.A. in his life. And when I first met him, he had these huge crates in his back room that he hadn't even opened yet. And I figured with his collection, and he had a great knowledge because he was reading all this Jamaican and English press, um, and with my radio background, we could do a great show. And we went to all the commercial stations in L.A. for a year. Nobody wanted it. And we finally went to KPFK, the Pacifica station, and they told us we couldn't do it because we were white. So we went to KCRW, a struggling little national public radio station I've heard of it. Yeah. that was in a, a <laughs> converted junior high school classroom at the time and had great plans for growth. And Tom Schnabel, the music director, uh, brought us in. And it became instantly the most popular non-commercial show in L.A. And what was it? Well, it was it, what we, you we saw? were in the right place at the right time. Right. Reggae w uh, was becoming much better known. The major labels were picking up artists. Virgin and Island were, were king of the charts. And they had the ska revival at that point. And... Uh, Madness and and uh, the selector and the English beat, so people were interested and and we had the best collection you could possibly have of the rarest singles and I was getting all the new material and between us, we covered just about all the bases and our first guest was Bob Marley. Are you kidding? Yeah. What was I, that well, like? We were on the road. Uh, we were on the air for about six weeks when when I, Island Records called us up and said Bob's coming to town to promote the. Uh, survival album and and do a bunch of shows um, would you mind going on the road with him for two weeks what <laughs> <laughs> and we did and just had the most amazing time with him uh, formally and informally and hanging out at the hotel with him i set up two evenings where he saw two different films that were being made about him that he had never seen before one was about the assassination attempt a lot yep. of that footage is in the netflix documentary now shot by jeff walker his publicist who lived here in town and the other was about the one love peace concert when he brought manley and siaga together and uh, after we showed him that footage where he's standing in front of these two men who've been responsible for the deaths of so many thousands of people 
Um, and he made him shake hands in front of 40,000 people that in the National really Stadium. That was a really incredible moment in what the film. What a moment. Yeah. And um, we asked him afterwards what was going through his mind at that moment, standing between them. And he said, well, he says, I'm no politician, but if I'm a politician, only one thing for me to do, kill them both. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I thought he was extremely brave to be standing between them just no because kidding. both of them would have had targets on their head. And, yeah. And Marley did too. And Manley almost didn't come out on stage. His because he was too told scared? Him, or? His wife told him if he went up there, they were liable to shoot him, so don't go up there. That's why there's such a long pause while he's waiting. He's got Siaga, who, whose people came to kill him two years earlier, and he's got Siaga at his side, and they there's no manly and they keep looking around for manly and finally manly comes up and he shake hands you bastards and <laughs> holds their hands over his head and makes this benediction to Rastafari. they they just look the look in their eyes they're looking at each other as yeah. if to say oh God, well i we guess i mean it's bob marley he's asking us to make it's up it's one here. of the most priceless musical moments of the 20th century and his art director neville garrick compares it to christ on the cross between the two thieves <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very powerful. Again, that's yeah. the, the documentary, Who Shot the Sheriff? It's on Netflix now, and, and that's where we can see you and thoroughly recommend it. I was, yeah, I watched it. I was so tired one night, and then as soon as I started watching it, I got really invigorated yeah, watching it. Yeah, it captures you, doesn't it? It really gets you. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the, the story of when you saved up money to go to Jamaica to buy your own reggae records for the first time and people said roger you crazy you're gonna you want to go to kingston jamaica I, in the I mean, state of emergency when when i mean all hell was breaking loose it was they had mobilized the army they'd put tanks on the crossroads i thought i was back in saigon during the tet offensive yeah because you fought in vietnam yeah uh, i i i i just want to buy records you know yeah. and and kingston is deserted the streets are empty and everybody said, don't go to Kingston, for God's Man, sake. you must have loved reggae. <laughs> well, it's the only place that had the records. And I had 400 U.S. cash in my right-hand pants pocket that I'd saved up for a year to go down there. And we got dropped off. We took a minibus from uh, Ocho Rios on the north coast to uh, Kingston. And we got dropped off in a back alley um, where all the record shacks were. And the only one that was open was Bob Marley's. And the streets were really empty. Downtown Kingston, there was nobody to be seen. And the, the shack itself was maybe 10 feet wide, and there was a guy wearing nothing but a pair of shorts behind a, a board. And I said, let me see all your Bob Marley records. And he says, we don't got none. So did you end up getting what you came for? Did you get the, 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 the Bob Marley records that you... No. Nothing? No, so no. You went home with... He had withdrawn all his records from sale at that point because the government had banned his latest single, Rat Race, because he said, Rasta, no work for no CIA. Mm. So the government... Well, because in the film we learned that the CIA might have been behind... Yeah, you know, I've wanted to prove that in 45 years of researching this. Yes. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but there is no evidence that this was a direct order from either the CIA or Edward Siaga. But I've and, never found proof to this day, and I would be shouting it from the rooftops if I could find irrefutable evidence. proof. Yeah. yeah, just to give us some context for people who don't understand, Bob Marley got caught between two government 
uh, regimes, I guess you could say. And they both wanted him because they realized that he was a powerful voice and could pull the people one way or the other. Right. Bob Marley didn't want to have anything to do with no. either one of them. No. He Never make a politician grant you a favor. He will only want to control you forever. It's exactly what they wanted to do with him, right? Yeah, they, and he yeah. wanted nothing to do with it. No. But it got so scary for Bob Marley after the assassination attempt that he ended up having to leave the country he that he He went into exile for almost 15 months. And, the, and what did he do during that time? Uh, he spent most of it in England making two albums, the Exodus album, which was re released in June of 77, and then the follow-up um, album, Kaya, which was released in the spring of 1978. And one of the things he said was that was when he really realized how he had cut through to white people, to other people in the world, that he realized that he was loved not just in his own home country of Jamaica, yeah. but that, wow. I think that started that, in 75 when he played the Lyceum, which was his live album. Yes. And the audience was heavily white. Yeah. Yeah. And when he saw those crowds, he was like, yeah. oh my God, they, they love me. Yeah. 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 Hey, he filled the stadium in, in Milan in 1980. That was his biggest show. Can you they, tell me that funny story about he, he filled up a stadium in Milan and you were telling somebody famous that. Oh, well, Keith Richards came here to the Reggae Archives a few years ago to make a, a film for a, a Nyabingi album he made called Wingless Angels with Justin Hines. And I took him around to film the archive. And we came to a picture of the stadium, San Siro Soccer Stadium in Milan, filled to the brim. The whole field was filled, 110,000 people came to see Bob Marley, I told Keith Richards. And Keith nodded and he says, well, I suppose that's all well and good. In Rio, we drew two million. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Keith, I didn't mean to, to diss you, buddy. <laughs> uh, good sense of humor. Yeah, Roger, what are some things about Bob Marley that would surprise people that they wouldn't know? He never had a home of his own. He probably bought three dozen homes for band members, baby mothers, relatives, his mother. Um, he gave away almost all his money. Um, he lived for other people. And he, he knew that he was living for other people. He talked about it. If, if, if I can't help other people, then my, my life is meaningless. And he wanted everybody to know ultimately where he had come in his own philosophy. The two great militant masterpieces of his life are his first solo album, um, Natty Dread, um, which is about confrontations with the military and sheriffs. And um, basically, uh, I feel like bombing a church, he sang, now that I know the preacher is lying. Who's going to stay at home when the freedom fighters are fighting? But after he was shot, he went through a transformation. And as I said in the Netflix documentary, he comes back home and he brings the warring factions together. And that's when he went from showman to shaman. And the next militant album, maybe his greatest album of all time, was Survival in 79 with the anthem that became a beacon for the freedom fighters in Rhodesia called Zimbabwe. And 
he realized by that time that an eye for an eye just makes everybody blind. That if we're going to change the world, we have to change ourselves first. You mentioned, Roger, that you got this call from Island Records, 1979. Yeah. They called you up and they said, we want to twist your arm, but would you come on <laughs> tour? I was jumping out of my skin with excitement. I was yeah. so starstruck at that point, you know? And I, I wanted to be prepared, so I, I did whatever research I, I could. And um, we asked a lot of, Hank and I asked a lot of very serious questions so that basically there you know, about 30 people in the dressing room and everybody was listening to Hank and me talk to Bob. You said he was a hard worker. You said he was the, the, the first guy on the bus, the, yeah. the last guy to leave, yeah. uh, dedicated. And, and so when you hear people say, oh, Bob Malley smoked a lot of ganja <laughs> and was a slacker, you know, kind of cruisy. There was one thing that Bob was not in his life, and that was a slacker. Bob was working night and day. He, he was in constant demand by so many different elements. And he did it all with grace and with compassion and sympathy for the underdog. He touched so many people's lives and continues to do so. Yeah. And you were one of the fortunate people who had a personal relationship with him. He had a nickname for you too, right? He called me Ross Roja. <laughs> Ross Roja. Was it Roger? It was Roja. 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 Come Roja. here, man. <laughs> and where did that come from? Uh, well, you know, everybody in, in reggae has a nickname. And he just looked at you and said, well, was, yeah, you Roja. have got kind of like a silvery afro kind of thing going on well now but back then i had you know long brownish black hair down to my shoulders and so i was a rasta in my heart <laughs> well knowing how much you loved his music and what he stood for mm. it, it's pretty special memories the the things that you'll never forget are there things that you often the, think of yeah you know because i, I I was able to be with him privately, and he let me come to what proved to be his final rehearsal in California. Uh, he was playing a benefit for Sugar Ray Robinson's foundation, the, the boxer, at the Roxy, at the end of doing shows at the Pauley Pavilion and San Diego Sports Arena. Um, and he did a three-hour sound check all by himself where he played all the instruments himself because the big mockers were coming from Hollywood that night. He wanted everything to be absolutely perfect. And the first hour, he kept singing something over and over and over again I'd never heard before about redemption. Redemption? It was redemption song. And, you know, six, seven months before anybody ever heard the song. What an amazing song that is. Yeah, yeah. It just his... His livication, his, if I had to choose one word, and it's, if you ask this to anybody who worked with Bob, almost every one of them say the same things. Give me one word to describe Bob Marley. Yeah. Disciplined. Wow. Disciplined. Yeah. And if you weren't up to that standard, he didn't want you around him. I mean, the, the I3 tell me stories. Judy Moat said one day he rehearsed a song for 14 hours. 14 hours singing the same song over and over until everybody got every part right. He made his band learn how to play everybody else's instruments so they knew intimately how each song fit together. You know, if I made a, a tape of 
10 different versions of No Woman, No Cry. They might run from four and a half minutes to seven minutes to sometimes 15 minutes. And on stage, you know, a lift of an eyebrow or a flick of a finger can guide the band into a whole new place depending on what spirit had overtaken them at any given time. They were so well rehearsed, they could go anywhere. And that's why we collectors prize those live tapes so very, very much. The thing that I love. It's like a jazz man. Yeah, yeah. Roger, one of the tragic things that you hear about with Bob Miley is that he gets melanoma, and perhaps had he been treated earlier, it might have extended his life. What happened? How did he find out that he had this melanoma? After the French journalist stepped on his foot and he went to the doctor, they realized that there was something really seriously wrong with it and they sent him to specialists and he was told that he had melanoma and it was already third stage and they were really anxious for him to cut the, f amputate the foot and that would almost assuredly stop the spread through his body and he would get to live a long, a long life. And he got a lot of bad advice from people around him. And, you know, Rastas don't cut their hair. They, <laughs> the idea of cutting your foot off was uh, not what Bob would ever consider doing. And had he had the proper medical advice and had that operation, the chances are, are very good that he, he would still be among us. I think... He was a fatalist. The mere fact that as a kid he told folks he was going to be dead at 36, he knew that this was what was going to kill him. And he, I think he wanted to stay alive, but I think he was fatalistic about it too and, and, and knew that this is something that's very, very hard to, uh, to conquer. And when you listen to his lyrics today, Roger, in a way, it feels like they're more relevant than they were then. I think there's a lot of uh, prophecy in his lyrics that hasn't come true. We, we'll only learn that with the passage of time. Yeah, these are anthems to live by. You, you listen to Bob's music, you have a, a perfect recipe for a good life. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and, and sharing all those stories, an intimate story. And, uh, and also just letting us come into this space. And I really hope that everything that's here does find a proper home in Kingston, right? You, that's where you'd like it? I think it's going to be in Montego Bay. Or Montego Bay. Which might be in some ways safer. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like in Jamaica right now out of interest? You said you were Time there. tough, man. Time tough. I'm tough. Yeah. That's... <laughs> But, you know, they legalized marijuana. What are some of the myths about marijuana that maybe people don't understand? Well, that it makes you crazy. Yeah. That it's worse than alcohol. You know. Yeah. I, I've smoked virtually every day of my life since I got to Vietnam. I needed something to cut the 24-7 tension of having a war with no front line mm. where they were blowing up people in sidewalk cafes in Saigon, you know. 
And I didn't want to drink because if you're drunk, you're drunk. But if you're stoned and somebody starts shooting at you, you can get straight pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, you, all of this stuff you see, all the yes. 10 books that I've written and photographed, all the liner notes I've written, all the plays I've done, all the seven rooms floor to ceiling of, of stuff I've put together. I've been stoned almost all that time. So, you know, how are you going to tell me that it makes you lazy? Yeah, no, you're, I, I can see the incredible collection. You have certainly not been idle. No, <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> Roger, if there's one book that people should read about Bob Marley, is it this one? Well, so, according to Rolling Stone Magazine's yes, current issue, tell uh, me, Mr. Kogan, um, it would be a book called So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. It's written by this guy who lives in Echo Park. I, I, I heard he was a stoner, though. <laughs> He's a big stoner, man. <laughs> I have a feeling I know uh, part of the answer to this question. Mm. If, if you were going to take a road trip across America, Roger, and you could take anybody in the car with you, uh, you could take three companions from any time in history, dead or alive. Oh, that's interesting. Well, one would be Tim Page, my old roommate, one of the greatest, most gonzo storytellers and characters in, in the world. I mean, how many people function on his level who have the right third of their brain blown out the back of their head mm -hmm. and just, you know, totally gonzo? I'm guessing Bob would probably be on that list, wouldn't he? Well, Bob would be there, and, and another man named Bob, I think, Bob Watt. He was a self-described insincere Zen master. He demanded you fall in love at least three times per block walked. <laughs> uh, he, he had a way to end the Vietnam War. He said, um, a 500-pound bomb costs the same as a new Cadillac. <laughs> so... Instead of dropping bombs, we should drop new Cadillacs. And the Viet Cong would spend all their time looking for turtle wax and, <laughs> and gas, and we'd only have to drop them once. <laughs> and what about your last day on Earth, Roger? How would you live that out? Ooh, listening to Bob Marley, looking at beautiful photographs, watching the sunset and homing it down with my wife. Maybe a joint? Oh, it goes without saying. <laughs> That's understood. Okay. You just take that as you're, you're given. <laughs> Phil, what a joy. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> One love. One love every One time. Love. Yeah. <laughs> Rasta Raja. Ras Roja. Ras Roja. What would you be, Phil Kogan? I am the Philominator. Philiminator, that's Rasta good. Philiminator. Yes, man, that's I'm a great name. I'm filiminating people. That's what I'm doing. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. This was really a pleasure for me. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com, and let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know; you might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it. <laughs>